podcast one production. Back in 1999, I had two very good friends who'd moved to Amsterdam. They loved it there. I visited them a few times, and I could see how much they enjoyed the city and the culture. And then suddenly, they announced they'd be moving back to America. No warning, no explanation. I remember calling them very concerned to find out why, and they were evasive. And then just suddenly it clicked. They were pregnant. I asked them. They evaded, but in such a way they'll let me know, yeah, I'd got it right. That moment when it clicked, it left me thinking about the world that their child would be born into, the world of the 21st century. Nothing really focuses the mind on the future as intensely as a newborn. And for me, that evolved into the 50,000 words in my book, The Playful World, How Technology is Transforming Our Imagination. I put myself into the shoes of this child and took a look around at the world where Furbies were talking to them, where Legos could be programmed, where video game consoles could simulate almost anything imaginable. Using these toys, toys that we gave to kids 20 years ago, toys that we're still giving to kids today. And I used those toys to show a world where artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and virtual reality would become common tools. Now, some of the predictions in the playful world, they've come true. Others, they're taking longer. But I learned that if you want to take a deep look into the future, it's a good idea to take someone along who will do all of their living there. And that's what we're about to do in this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. Before we introduce our guest, a few words of background. Nearly a billion and a half seconds ago, this is back in 1978, Louise Brown entered the world, the first child born via in vitro fertilization. Today, over 8 million children have been born via IVF. That is nearly one person in a thousand on planet Earth. Now, because I'm of an age and from a socioeconomic group in which IVF became a real option for couples, I actually know a lot of IVF babies. They're all happy, they're all loved, and they're all very definitely wanted. IVF is not easy. It's not cheap. There's no guarantee of success. But for couples who have not been able to conceive via traditional means, it's been a godsend. And that is absolutely the case for our next guest. What can we say about Alexandra Scori? Well, not a lot. Not yet. His list of accomplishments, it's brief. But for all that, his story is an important one because of what Alex can tell us about the future. Conceived via IVF, born in the natural way to a 46-year-old mother and a 57-year-old father, Alex is just six days old. As we sit down with Alex, we need to have a think about the span of his future. Now, it is entirely reasonable to believe that Alex will live to see the year 2100. He'll only be 80 years old, which even today is not a very advanced age. Now, it's likely that Alex will live for at least 3 billion seconds, 95 years. And that's, that's roughly the age range I'm aiming for myself. There's little reason to believe that 
with another century of advances in medicine won't make that a strong possibility. I mean, consider where medicine was 80 years ago. Back in 1939, we didn't even have penicillin. So as we talk with Alex, we need to take a longer view than is customary for this show. Because the further out we go, yes, the foggier our view. But we can at least imagine that world. And the outer edges of that world, three billion seconds from now, that is our topic in this show. We're going to need to be bold. And if we get it wrong, at least we've tried. So now let's travel all the way into the early years of the 22nd century, following Alex Corey through the span of his long life. The first question, and it's the question we always ask now, is there going to be a planet for Alex? Or have we, and his grandparents, and his great-parents, have we all had a fantastic party but left the joint trash for him to clean up? And Alex will never know a planet that was as pristine as it might have been at 1750 at the dawn of the industrial era. That's absolutely true. And there is some debate about how much the planet will have warmed by 2100. But we know where things are heading, and we know what all of that implies. At the very least, the oceans will have warmed and risen 30 centimeters. And if you factor in the melt of Greenland and the Antarctic ice sheets, could well turn out to be half a meter. Islands will disappear. So will Bangladesh and Miami and Venice and Bangkok. All of that sounds very dire, and all of that's saddled our generation with a pervasive sense of doom. We're so depressed about the plight we're in, we consider ourselves powerless to intervene, unable to change our ways or mitigate the inevitable, none of which seems very helpful. I think maybe we need to be a little bit more constructive about our thinking. We need to be honest about how we got here, how we can move from here into a different sort of world. Now, here's the thing. Human beings are not going to be wiped out by climate change. That's just a baseline. We are incredibly adaptive. We will find ways to adapt. The bigger problem is that the planet itself, all of the biota, all of the animals, all of the plants, they don't adapt at the same rate we adapt. And so we have to worry more about the larger ecosystems we find ourselves embedded in than we do about ourselves, particularly as a species. We know that the source of our problems comes from our prosperity, that in fact we've been incredibly successful as a species, that we've managed to harness energy and we've been able to harness machines and we've been able to harness our intelligence and use all of this to bring incredible wealth to an increasingly large number of people on the planet. And in this very profound way, we've become not just used to, the, to that level of wealth, but actually used to the idea that that level of wealth is going to increase. And we've come to see it increasingly as our birthright, not just for ourselves, but for every generation that follows after us. And we've now, in some sense, not so much hit the limits to growth, but we've started to see the consequence of that kind of thinking. We've started to see where our limits lie. How much can we ask for? How much can we expect to use and receive before we actually start to bear some costs for that? 
And it's very hard to know how all of that will account for. But we can start to see that there's some consequential nature to our thinking, to our desires, to our wants, to the wants that we want for Alex, the kinds of things that we want him to have. How do we provide that in a world where there are eight or 10 billion other people? And this is the thing that frightens us because we don't see our way toward any solution for that. We think that this is essentially an insoluble problem. It's not an insoluble problem. But it is a problem that may require us to become less attached to certain ideas of what prosperity is, to certain ideas of what wealth is, to certain ideas of what well-being is. And that's going to be an interesting problem because that's not really a political problem. That's not really a problem of materiality or of science. That's a problem of culture. That's a problem of how we think and how we value. Now, one of the hallmarks of the 21st century, and we can already see this, and we'll be covering this in Series 3, is that we're going to be transitioning away from an age of materiality and into an age of experience. And you can already see this with a younger generation who doesn't want to own a house, who doesn't want to own a car, but actually are now structuring their lives around experiences and things that they can learn, because we can see some of that corner already being turned. And Alex will completely grow up in a culture in which the things that you've done are going to be more highly valued than the things that you own. Now, does that present the complete answer to where we are? Can we do that on a planet with 8 or 10 billion people and do that sustainably? Those are the open questions, but we at least know how we can start to ask those questions in a meaningful way. And we can also think about how to present him with his life choices that would stress the experiences that he has, that he shares, that he offers, that he learns, that he teaches, versus simply the stuff that he owns. And we can also see, just at the macro level, how we're making the transition to a different kind of energy economy. We had Ramaz Nam on Series 2 talking about how it is now cheaper per kilowatt to use solar energy than it is to use coal energy, and that this is going to be true consistently in all the years going forward. So we actually now have the opportunity to move to a much lower carbon economy, which we know is part of the solution, maybe not the entire solution, and that that right there is now already the case. So this was already true before Alex entered the world. Alex is now always in a world where that kind of power from the sun is a basic part of our experience. And here's Mez talking about it. To give you a context, a new coal-powered or a natural gas-powered power plant will produce electricity at six or seven U.S. cents per kilowatt hour, Mm -hmm. six or seven cents per unit. In Abu Dhabi, with no subsidies, they had a solar deal signed for a 20-year lifetime of this deal at 2.4 cents. So they're basically figuring that if the panels last 30 years, you know, on average, then the cost over that, even if it's higher at the beginning, the cost by the end will average out to being sort of two and a half cents per kilowatt. Yeah. So the, a private company mm. built is building that facility. And so they've done the math on what's their labor cost to install the panels, what are the panels, the cost of the land, and what's the degradation rate, how fast do they get worse, how much do they have to spend cleaning dust off the panels. And their math said, we can bid at 2.4 cents and make a profit. And there were four other bidders that all came in under 3 cents. So four different companies bid at less than half the price of a coal power plant. 
So although we want to dwell on our problems and the intractability of our problems, and although we want to paint a very dire picture for our children's future, in fact, the future is not dire. They will adapt, we will learn, and we will re-emphasize cultural values based on being rather than owning. Okay, so there's another flavor of impending doom, one that's wrought more by our creations than by ourselves. We make movies about our nightmares, about the rise of machines that silently turn on us and wipe us from the earth. It makes for very good melodrama. But is it realistic even in three billion seconds? Now, all of this comes back to a concept known as the technological singularity. And in the previous episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we talked to Werner Vinge, who originated that idea back in 1982. And we talked to him about what form the technological singularity could take. And this is what he had to say. The basic idea that, of the singularity, the notion that I, I, I felt that it was, uh, given the progress that I was seeing in technology, that it was something that uh, the, rise of super, the rise of superhuman intelligence via technology was something that was going to happen in the relatively near historical future. Beyond that, there's the notion that I saw that there were several different scenarios for getting there. Uh, there's the standalone supercomputer idea. There is the network of humans and their computers put together. That's, I put that as a separate uh, category. And then a third category was um, the notion that individual humans collaborating with isolated computers could, in, in, in fact, have a form of intelligence amplification. Intelligence augmentation, by the way, is a term for, I think, pretty much the same thing that has been used before. The term I used in the paper was intelligence amplification. Yeah, and Engelbart would have used augmentation, you were using amplification, but yeah, they're really I, I think the, two sides right. of the same coin. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the story that I had written back in 65 or 66 about the chimpanzee fitted with that um, uh, very well. And it also was attractive to me and I think a, a lot of people at the time uh, as an alternative to being taken over by the robots. Mm. Although, as oh, let me go through the rest of the, the list. The next one was biological enhancements of human intelligence. Mm. And then one that is not on the bulleted list at the beginning of the paper but is in the paper is the notion that, that uh, embedded, uh, embedded computers in network systems could create something that would be very like the notion of animism, whereas the, where the environment itself wakes up. And we have a word for that nowadays. It's called the Internet of Things. Now, I have to admit, I find the idea of a fully-fledged AGI, artificial general intelligence, this means an intelligence that's just in every possible way smarter than us. I find that a very difficult idea to accept in the short term, and even in the medium term of a billion seconds. So that's all the way out to 2050. Will we have massively smarter than human machines by 2050? In certain categories, sure. But will we have it as a general thing? I wouldn't guarantee it, because that's a really hard problem. But if we go all the way out, if we look at the early years of the 22nd century, I have to say that is most assuredly going to be a thing. We will have fostered a new kind of intelligence born from us, but not made of the same stuff as us. And it will have capacities that we can't easily understand. Now, that's not to say that they will seem godlike to us, because I don't think it's anywhere near that simple. They will seem remote. They will seem busy with their own affairs. 
And they may not take that much effort to hide it from mere mortals, that they're off doing other things. But they will be there, and we will learn how to approach them with the appropriate offerings to be granted favors and booms. And I'm using this sort of quasi-religious language here on purpose, because it's the language that we have to talk about things that are so much greater than us. And that's not a perfectly correct language, and it's not meant to be a blasphemous language. We're not conflating the idea of these very powerful entities with the idea of an eternal God. That's not what we mean. It's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that gives us a handle, a tool that can be used to talk about a world where there are computers that are so much brighter than us that having a conversation with them is effectively, as Werner Vinge put it, like having a conversation with a goldfish. Post-singularity, the, 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 the people there will, will be able to undertake with a conversation with you and me mm. um, perfectly well from our point of view. Uh, from their point of view, it's also perfectly well, except that the, the, you know, there's a whole lot they're not, they, they, they can't say to us. That, that's why the, the um, equivalence with the goldfish is, I think, right. The, we understand a goldfish uh, pretty well, actually. I, I think we understand the goldfish as well as the goldfish understands itself. Uh, the other direction is not so much, and, and, we, and, and there's all sorts of things that we cannot explain to the goldfish. Uh, so that's, that's the transition that, that, that uh, I, I see. So if we go all the way out to 2200, we know that we're going to have some sort of a relationship, which in terms from the 20th century might almost look kind of sort of like a religious relationship, right? With these extremely powerful, extremely bright, and hopefully extremely helpful entities. They're going to be busy with their own affairs, but they will be able to help us. That's going to make Alex's world much more interesting. It's going to have a different flavor, a different texture than this world in 2019. Because we're kind of the only game in town in 2019. And by 2100, that's not going to be the case. Now, when we come back, we'll take a look at a frontier in technology that's 4 billion years old, yet evolving rapidly. You're listening to Mark Pesci and Alex Corey on The Next Billion Seconds. And we're back on the next billion seconds in conversation with, or perhaps I should say, conversation with six-day-old Alex Corey about what his life will be like over the next three billion seconds. Now, there's one topic that we've ignored on this podcast. And yes, I'm painfully aware that we've ignored this topic, biology. Now, it's not intentional. I hope to be creating the next billion seconds for a good long time to come. So I've always thought we'll get to it because biology is important for a number of reasons. I mean, at its most essential level, biology is the story of us in a way that our tools and our technology is not the story of us. We are biology. To ignore it means ignoring ourselves. And later in Series 3, we'll talk to Dr. Fiona Kerr, who will share with us what our biology can tell us about the way we need to work with our machines and with one another. But that's really only the very tip of what's going on. Just four years ago, we saw the very first scientific papers describing precise human gene editing using a technology known as CRISPR. Now, CRISPR on its own, 
is just as important as the discovery of DNA. And it actually completes the story because where DNA spells out how the cell creates proteins, CRISPR tells the DNA what to spell out. So the two together, DNA and CRISPR, give us precise control of the apparatus within a single cell. And now that we have this fundamental tool for the manipulation of the operation of the cell, we can expect that the cell will become the core building block of the 21st century in much the same way the transistor was the building block of the 20th century. And it's it's difficult to give such a big transition its due. I mean, it's almost too much for a futurist and perhaps better suited to the pages of a science fiction novel. But we'll give it a try so that Alex can have some sense of what he's looking forward to. First, the biota. That's the entire world of biology. All of it will be carefully analyzed, taken apart, and put back together systematically. Biology differs from mechanical systems and that it tends to operate in holes rather than in isolation. You need to see whole systems in operation in order to understand how they operate. And we'll do all of that with the more complex animals, of course, including ourselves, of course. But the real benefits of this will come from their application to the world of microorganisms. Most of the biomass on this planet is in microorganisms. The bacteria and the archaea that surround us, that fill the air and the water and the earth and even float around the earth. And we've started more and more to suspect that microorganisms are actually the most significant component in the planet's ecology. Just as we're starting to understand how important our microbiomes in our guts and on our skin are important to us. And in the 22nd century, we will have a far, far clearer idea of how microorganisms create the conditions for life on Earth. And we'll probably have gone a long way to putting that to work for us to help keep the Earth well suited to us. Now, that's, that's half of it. And it's a really important half. But it's possibly the less interesting half. More interesting half, at least from Alex's point of view, will be the sorts of things we will be able to do to ourselves with CRISPR. We think of ourselves as biologically fixed. We are as we were when we were born, even if you were only born six days ago. We grow, sure, we grow, but according to predetermined patterns provided by our genes. Well, that is not going to be true for Alex. Probably long before he gets to my age, Alex will be able to benefit from a range of CRISPR-based treatments that can mutate his genetic characteristics in any desired direction for pretty much any reason. Everything that we think of as being fixed about ourselves, our eye color, our hair color, our skin color, our height, even our sex, All of it is going to be mutable. Will it be continuously mutable? Will we be able to migrate from one point to another point freely? That remains to be seen. But we will be able to swing wildly across a spectrum that we can't even sense now. And all of that means that as Alex grows older, as his genes start accumulating all of the errors associated with age, he'll be able to repair those errors. 
he should be able to slow his rate of aging dramatically. Now, does that mean that he'll live far longer than us? We don't know that. We can't know that until he or one of his peers in the 22nd century actually does live far longer. We know that right now, it's effectively impossible for a human to live beyond 120 years. Our genes and our bodies simply aren't built for it. But we might be able to reset those things. We might be able to turn the inevitable into the indefinitely deferred. Now, is that immortality? No. No, not at all. The more we look at aging, the less it looks like a disease and the more it looks like time as it plays out on the physical fabric of our bodies. And you can't stop time. But it could well be that Alex Corey will be less afraid of what time means than his parents are. Just a few days ago, I had my first experience with a set of the Magic Leap augmented reality spectacles. Now, we've talked about them back in series two, and it won't be that long until those spectacles and other similar spectacles are widely available. Certainly, long before Alex Corey is even in middle school. So what's that going to mean? Well, you've certainly discussed the potential dangers of augmented reality in the show back in series two across the two episodes of The Last Days of Reality. Because there's a real question when your view of the world is so closely linked with any organization, such as Facebook, that's modifying your view of the world toward their ends. That is not really a world that any of us want to live in. So why is augmented reality such a big deal for Facebook? They say it so it can help them on their mission to help the world share even better. They might even believe that. But there's another side to augmented reality, something we shouldn't overlook. In order to work, augmented reality has to be really aware of the world around you. It has to scan where you are. It has to scan the walls, the floor, the tables, the people. It has to know where all of it is so that when it adds something, it does it in a way that doesn't look weird. That means augmented reality is the best surveillance technology we've ever come up with. It's not just a camera recording an image and sending it off somewhere. It's actually aware of where you are and what's around you all of the time that you're using it. That kind of data is necessary for augmented reality. That kind of data is a goldmine for a company that monetizes everything it can learn about you. A company like Facebook. Facebook wants augmented reality because it helps them to know even more about their users. Know where they are, what they're doing, who they're doing it with, what's going on around them. All of that has to be provided to Facebook in order for Facebook to deliver the kinds of augmented reality experiences it's now building. So is this a tool for sharing or is this a clever way for Facebook to gather data on users who are becoming more afraid about the amount of data they're handing over to Facebook? Possibly it's a bit of both. We already know that Facebook uses its artificial intelligence profiling to measure user moods. 
and they will certainly use the data gathered from augmented reality to improve those measurements. But Facebook might go beyond that. They might be tempted to use augmented reality to manipulate the mood of their users. Put on a pair of augmented reality spectacles from Facebook and presto! Your feed has come to life in the world around you. You'll see just what Facebook wants you to see to keep you engaged and wearing those spectacles. Just as they've done with the feed on your smartphone. They'll make it irresistible. Facebook is very good at that. And when it becomes irresistible, the real world, well, that will lose some of its savor. It won't be as fun. It won't be as meaningful as the world behind those Facebook spectacles. And people won't want to take them off. Now, that's not some imaginary dystopia. That's what's already happened on two billion smartphones. It's just that the screen is about to disappear and become invisible. That screen will become our world. If we can presume that we'll somehow manage to avoid that outcome, we will find a world where we can be using these augmented reality spectacles in a way that helps us. And that world is no means assured to be the case, but it's something we can decide that we want for Alex and thereby achieve. And if we do that, then we have an interesting new tool, a tool that is unlike any other, a tool that helps us see the world both in its physical manifestation, the ever-present, the born, the created, and as its digital manifestation. A digital view of the world should literally be overwhelming. We spent the last 30 years overlaying the real world with digital skin, and that will be so much more the case in three billion seconds. And it will be necessary to see this view, though any attempt to do so is effectively going to be blinding. It's going to be unthinkable complexity. So we're going to need a co-pilot. And this is where we circle back to the greater than human machine intelligences that we'll certainly see by the 22nd century. They will provide guidance. They will provide the filtering that we will need. They will become the indispensable companions in a world of unthinkable complexity, clarifying and in some senses simplifying our view of the world. This comes back to the idea that Werner Vinci introduced about us as goldfish. And we're going to need have things expressed in simple goldfishian terms because the world is going to be rich and complex and intelligent beyond our simple capacity. So if we're going to be goldfish, at least we can be working as the smartest possible goldfish. Because a goldfish with a super intelligent companion will outperform your ordinary goldfish. And that's the way things will go for Alex Corey. It's not likely that he's going to think of himself as a goldfish any more than a man who uses a forklift thinks of himself as weak. It's just that there are human limits. And where we want to transcend those limits, that's where we use tools. And this 
this is simply going to be another of those tools put to use in a task. The task being in a world full of complex, amazing, rich, and important systems. Because this is the key that can give us everything else. A companion in complexity that gives us both the vision and capacity to manage our own behavior in a way that's best for the environment. A companion in complexity that gives us the link we need to machine intelligences that are far beyond our ability to understand them. A companion in complexity that helps us work with the richly complex biota of the planet and helps us to understand how best to modify ourselves for wellness and for longevity. And this, in the end, is why I remain furiously optimistic about the 22nd century world, even as we're only barely into the 21st. The only things we really need to provide our children are our love and our attention. These, these are the firm foundation that allow children to feel safe as they go out and explore a world that's evolving under their feet. Alex Corey's world is going to be far different from any we have ever known in ways both good and hard. And we cannot know the exact shape of that world. We can see some of its forms, but only through a glass dimly. But you know what? We can know how to best prepare him for that world. He can be open. He can be ready to learn. He can be filled with optimism and energy and hope. He can bring all of that to a world that will need it from all of us. And our job right now is to provide the example of ourselves, to be open today, to be ready to learn today, to be filled with optimism and energy and hope, even when that seems almost impossibly difficult. Because so much of this is in our own heads and we have to face our own fears and our own demons and our own failures and love them. If we can do that, we can give Alexandros Corey the example he needs so he can find his own way through the next three billion seconds. Nothing focuses the mind on the future like a newborn. Alexandros' parents are a professional historian and a political scientist. So while I sat there next to Alex, I was always aware that as far as they're concerned, there are other stories that we can tell about the future, stories that draw from our past. We can never be free of what's gone before. History is almost a kind of inertia that keeps us moving on our established course. For as much as we might like to believe that the future will be different for a generation that will live to see the 22nd century, we all know that technology is not an answer. The utopias that it promises they never really deliver, and we looked at that in detail in Series 2 in our conversation with Eric Davis. So although I could paint a picture where we somehow make it through the challenges of climate change and find a new relationship to machine intelligences that leaves us more or less intact and human and perhaps smarter and possibly even wiser, well, history says never really goes according to plan. We're human and we regularly fall short of our dreams. History also teaches that those failures are often more important and more meaningful than our successes. Alex Corey will find his own path across the next three billion seconds, and I hope we can do our best to help him on his journey. Now, has our conversation gotten you to thinking about the deep future and the world of today's newborns? If so, we'd like to hear from you. 
drop by our website, leave us a message on Twitter or on LinkedIn. We want to bring that future home to you. Our next episode is the second in our new series all about the future of automobiles, the next billion cars. We're diving into the deep end with an exploration of autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. Are they really just around the corner or, as the mirror says, are objects further away than they appear? That's the next billion cars coming up on our next episode. On the episode after that, we'll be back with the next billion seconds and a voyage through the future of entertainment. Then we'll drop another episode of The Next Billion Cars, all about electric vehicles. We've got great shows coming. You'll want to be here to listen. I'd very much like to thank my great friends for their generous permission to let their son Alexandros appear on this show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the next billion seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.